I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. How many of you were already in the book of Luke? Yeah. Hebrews. If you'll turn to Hebrews, we're going to read some selected passages. So you're going to have to follow along closely. I'm not going to give you what they all are. I'll tell you where I'm going to start. Selected passages beginning in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. And then over the next three chapters, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, we're going to have some selected portions that we're going to read. We're not going to read all three chapters, but we are going to read these selections. And uh, you'll understand, hopefully, as we get into our text this morning, uh, why we are selecting these. And so I will uh, direct your attention from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. We will get to chapter 8, verse 6, and then we'll jump. And so I'll give you the... Heads up, but it's all right here in order. I'll bring out the New King James Version, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning verse 23 also. There were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever as an unchangeable priesthood, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appointed as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now... He has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Now if you'll go with me to chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of, bull, of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And then jump with me to verse 23 of chapter 9. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of these things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the end of the world, at the end of the ages, I'm sorry. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And then to chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now there is remission of these. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This morning I want to begin with a question. It's a rhetorical question I'm asking of you because I think most of you have been trained fairly well in it. But if I were to ask this question generally among the Christian community, I want you to consider what the answer might be. And the question is, what is worship? We call this a worship service. I look online and I find a number of churches that have something called a worship pastor. Which betrays what they think worship is. Uh, in fact, I have a very good friend. Um, grew up in high school and he is a worship pastor at his church. Uh, which means that he is responsible for the service up until the man gets up there to preach. The music ministry of the church. Which includes the choir and the congregational singing and special music and the offertory and things along that line. And he is the worship pastor. And it begins to betray, and by the way, this isn't just an American phenomenon. I find this really internationally now. Uh, that the concept is, is that our worship involves our singing and that part. And if we ask the question, what makes a good worship? Response more often than not, will involve how it made you feel. It will involve whether it gave you tinglys or whether it um, made you uplifted is the word they like to use. If I'm uplifted, that's a real worship. When I am uplifted, which is a horrific thing to say, because that's the opposite of worship. You see, worship isn't about lifting up ourselves, but of lifting up Christ. And yet we have totally warped it in the Christian community. This isn't the world that's done this. This is our churches who have done this. We're going to enter into the worship time of our service now. Get your hymn book. And we, through the power of music, and I do not negate it, I do not, I simply acknowledge it, there is great power in it. And through skit or drama and through dramatic readings, um, we seek to produce within the sensibilities of men certain responses. And we say, 
Wow, that was worship. It gave me goosebumps. And I want to share with you that maybe that's the farthest thing from it. That if Christ wasn't exalted, that worship did not occur. In our text today, we are going to finish up the Gospel of Luke. And I think I've been saying that for the last three or four weeks, that I'm going to finish up the Gospel of Luke. I might say for two or three more weeks to come. I'm not sure. Actually, I am, but I know what, what we've got coming. We finish off with Christ's instruction, and we didn't get to the last four verses of the chapter last week. And I need to do so carefully. And I actually have two sermons that I want to preach today. Um, so listen quickly. Verse 50 says of Luke 24, And he led them out as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Let's go, Lord, in prayer as we continue our worship service. Lord God, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. Lord, as always, we come to it with a certain sense of awe, a certain fearfulness, for we are handling your very word of truth. And we recognize the necessity of carefulness, that we not interfere by injecting our ideas and concepts of what is or is not that we might receive from your hand your word. We pray your spirit have liberty to move amongst us. We know that which, which hinders his work is our sin, and we confess it before you freely right now. And ask you to cleanse us of it, that you might truly have full liberty to work in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives this hour, and not ending this hour, but continuing to have that kind of liberty to exercise your power in us as you desire. Lord, we pray for your illumination into your truth. We pray for your conviction. We pray for your direction. And we thank you that these are all freely offered by your hand. And simply wait upon us to humble ourselves and beg them. Lord, may our prayer today be, Behold your servants. That we might receive your word. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to come back to worship. That is one of my sermons this morning. But I want to begin with that which is going to move us to worship. And that is not um, the sensations of your flesh or of your spirit. But somehow we're going to evoke that through the tapping of some emotive element in you, whether it be through your mind and conjuring up scenes or images that either uh, move you to compassion or move you to joy or move you to sorrow. But we're going to do it as Christ did it this day, this event that we are describing here in Luke. And to do so, we're going to back up in Luke 24 and do a little review very, very quickly and to look at what led up to this place of worship and this time of worship, for that is what's going to move us into the realm of worship in our daily life. And I do want to emphasize that it should be a daily event in your life, moment by moment, hour by hour, and not just reserved for Sunday mornings or when you happen to be in voice. 
I want to begin by sharing where this all started. And it started with a group of men who were afraid. When confronted with the realities of what was happening around them, they were afraid. Not only of the hopes that were dashed and the despair that was settling in on them over the last three days, but even when there was a a, a bright shining hope, they were afraid of that as well. And I find that fear is something that envelops men without God. That without belief in Jesus Christ, that both when good things are happening and when the darkness of despair settles in on us, that either way, our lives are enveloped with fear. These are men that Christ had dealt with for years and they had been exposed to the, His working, His power, His teaching, His person, and yet here they are enveloped in fear. Totally unprepared to worship. Because their hopes and dreams seem dashed against the rocks and then the unimaginable seems to have happened, but can we really even trust our senses and trust ourselves to to let it be true? We find them in unbelief. And therefore we find them frightened and terrified. Both of how bad it could be and even frightened of how good it could be. This week, my house has been full of concern. Should I say worry? Um, in fact, we almost were afraid to say certain words like, I haven't gotten it yet. And I walked around the most of this week with this little jar of hand sanitizer. We sterilized everything we could. We tried to isolate those who were throwing up and... Uh, various other things, and, and and I was afraid to say I haven't gotten it yet. So this morning I'm going to tell you I haven't gotten it yet. I haven't said that all week, and I've been avoiding it. My wife keeps saying, don't you feel terrible? Don't you feel miserable? I'm like, maybe I do. <laughs> I'm going to go outside now. <laughs> I, want, I don't want to get this illness. I was afraid of being healthy. Just as much as I was afraid of being sick. And this is the situation we find the disciples in. They're afraid that all their dreams are dashed and they're afraid to believe that they're not. And it made them incapable of worship because they didn't believe. It made them incapable of understanding what worship was. Or incapable of exercising it if they did understand it at all. Even with Christ in their very presence, they were not worshiping. They were full of fear. And then Jesus Christ did what is necessary to move us from fear to worship, and that is He opened the Scriptures to them. Do you see it there in Luke? Verse 44, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things were fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding they might comprehend the Scriptures. We don't need to begin with a catchy tune to initiate our worship. But what is absolutely required for us to worship is an understanding of the Scriptures. That we comprehend them. And it is no wonder that worship fails us from day to day when we have no time for the Scriptures on a daily basis. And we wonder, why am I Why is worship so foreign to me? And why is why am I so fearful of both enjoying the good 
I'm afraid if I enjoy it too much, it might go away. Enjoying my health, or I might lose it. Um, or so sure in despair that bad things are going to happen to me. Well, let's spend some time in the Scriptures. And we will move from this kind of fearfulness to real worship. Christ begins by opening up the Scriptures to Him. And I want you to note that Jesus Christ is there personally, in their midst. They're not ready to worship yet. Isn't that incredible to think about? I mean, if Jesus Christ were standing right here, the incarnate one who has resurrected from the dead, who is standing in our presence in his glorified body, he would say, wow, we would be worshiping. But that wasn't the case. They were afraid. They were doubtful. They thought they'd seen a ghost. They misinterpreted him. They misunderstood him. And Jesus Christ didn't just say, look at my hands and feet, give me something to eat. Here's the physical evidentiary that's out there that I am here and real. But it wasn't until He opened the Scriptures and they began to comprehend the writings of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus? Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The prophets. You know those guys we're studying on Sunday night. The Psalms. Well, okay, we accept... Okay, Psalms kind of help us me to worship. Yeah, I get that one. No, all of it. When he opens up the Scriptures to them, now they're ready to move toward worship. It's not by... A drama. It is not by a, 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 a musical score. It is through the opening and the comprehension of Scripture that our worship is enabled, is initiated. The Holy Spirit's part in that cannot be missed. It is He who is the illuminator of God's Word to us. He then goes on, if you recall, and out of that context of understanding the Scriptures, it then gives them a, a mandate, and that is to share it with others. That we are to be witnesses of all things that are declared regarding Christ in the Scriptures, that we confront men with this message, that they might come to repentance, that God might remove their sins, that we might uh, make disciples, as Matthew records. And let me share with you that it is impossible to worship in a state of disobedience. It is impossible to worship while in a state of disobedience. So first, we must understand the Scriptures. And second, we must be obedient to what they declare to us. And we understand that we have a mandate given to us by God that requires something of me. And to think that I can come together together with God's people on a Sunday morning and invoke this great act of worship by singing the Hallelujah Chorus or any other song while Monday through Saturday I'm living for self and Sunday afternoon I'm planning simply to indulge my flesh is error. You have not done any worship. It is impossible to worship while in a state of disobedience. God calls us to repentance and removal of sin, and He calls us to declare that message. He has a command placed upon us, a directive that anticipates us to fulfill. And then, thirdly, we come to the first message today. That was just a review so far. And that is that we have a living Savior, the object of our worship. And today I want to share with you that we need to grasp more fully, not just to appreciate more, not just to help us do this thing called worship, whatever it is. I haven't even defined it for you yet, really. I define what it isn't, but I haven't really defined it. 
We know it's supposed to be centered on Christ. And here we find the disciples worshiping Christ as he has left. In his absence. But I want you to look very carefully at what goes on here. It says Christ in verse 50. He leads them out as far as Bethany. So he's gone out um, um, over on the other side, the Mount of Olives in that area, and he's blessed them. And yes, I would contend that having received the blessing of God is in fact uh, a key part of worship, and that is God's response to our response to His calling. As we respond to Him by faith believing that He removes our sin and blesses us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, Ephesians 1. And it says, while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. This information is critical to our worship. Hebrews that we read earlier, and I know it was extensive Bible reading we did in the book of Hebrews um, in chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, uh, probably a little bit more than, than we normally read, um, but it was critical that you get the whole argument there of the author of Hebrews in regards to this person, Jesus Christ. And the passages I read were specifically about his place in heavenly realm. And that place, and understanding that role that Christ has there, draws us in, demands of us, moves in us, to worship properly. And I would contend without this, your worship will be not only misdirected, it might even be error. We serve a living Savior who is today continuing to fulfill a role that only He could fill in a manner that only He could accomplish. And while Hebrews rightly, of course, focuses on that sacrifice of Christ on Calvary's cross, which we have carefully studied, and its application upon us for the removal of our sins, which has brought, been brought up again and again in the Hebrews passages we read, that, and again, over and over again, the emphasis was once for all. It doesn't have to be repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. It was one sacrifice accomplished at one point in history by one man, Jesus Christ, for all men, for all time, to cover all sin. Where was it applied is the question. And Hebrews very clearly explains that. That it wasn't a sacrifice that had to be put in place on the, the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. That wasn't where the sacrifice had to occur. Now, is Jerusalem key in the plan of God? Yes. And there are some who talk about um, that somehow there was a special cave that was underneath the Golgotha site and that the drops of Christ's blood dropped upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant that was somewhere underneath there and it goes on and on and on. And I have to ask those people who are so involved in that, have you ever read the book of Hebrews? <laughs> I don't care where Christ's drops of blood landed from off the cross. No matter where they landed, anywhere on this globe, is irrelevant. There's only one place where it is absolutely demanded that the blood of Christ be applied and it is the mercy seat in heaven of which whatever Moses and the Israelites made was simply a copy of. I don't... It, it is of no concern to me whether his blood ever touched the copy. Our concern needs to be about the original. And when we see Christ taken up from in front of them and taken up into heaven... 
We marvel not just because, well, he's defying gravity. Wow, that's something. Let's worship him. But rather, in theological significance that the author of Hebrews draws out for us, that listen, when he goes up into heaven, there is the application of his shed blood in that perfect tabernacle, that temple of God in heaven, of which the things on earth are simply a copy of, and there our sins are covered. There He mediates for us a new covenant. There is the place where my sins are remembered no more. It is that place that our Savior lives and works today on our behalf. And this role that the that Hebrews develop so carefully of Jesus Christ as the mediator, the mediator, the mediator. Did you hear it? How often in that reading this morning you heard that word, the mediator? He is the go-between. He is there. Affecting our relationship with God. He is the Source and the means. He is both the sacrifice and the priest that offers the sacrifice. He is both. And He is not doing it here, but there. And the ascension of our Lord is so key. And yet we often kind of neglect it in this, in the events around our, our, the initiation of our salvation of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And let's not neglect that fourth one. I know there, are, there's plenty of passages that focus on that, um, and that there, there aren't very, there are very few that emphasize the ascension, but the fact is that every time you find Christ referred to as a living one, as mediating this covenant, we find Him in those heavenly realms doing that on our behalf. I find many people concerned about the effects of sin that they have committed here on earth. We're worried about it. You know, oh, I have to pay for that sin here. You know, I committed this sin. It created this consequence. And I prayed and asked God, forgive me of this sin. Why do I have to still live under the consequence? Because the blood of Jesus Christ wasn't applied to the copy, but to the original. And the place where the consequences of sin are done with is in heaven. when we are given our glorified bodies. And the effects of sin are taken and separated from us. And so, our Savior, our sacrifice, the one who has sacrificed Himself to cover our sins, our Savior, our Deliverer, our Mediator, is in heaven. And many think, well, if Jesus Christ would just walk around today, more people would believe in Him. Really? It didn't seem to help the disciples much until they understood the Scriptures. They were witnesses, and and I'm going to take you back to uh, the beginning of Luke here in a little bit when we get to the worship part. Um, Luke is, is recording all the eyewitnesses. He is a man of faith who can participate in this worship not because he saw the Lord, but because he understood the reliable testimony of those who did. And he records it for us here and he adds to that testimony by his own. And similar, similarly, we respond to the testimony of others and the testimony of God's Word and we know it is true and then we add our testimony to it. And so it's no wonder that after Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, talking about this covenant relationship that we have with God because of Jesus Christ, because of His perfect sacrifice, because of His completed work, because of His uh, continuing work as mediator. 
that we come to chapter 11 and we find out what faith is all about. And the expectation is is that we will continue because we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses that we would exercise that kind of faith into our day. That we would be examples of faith even as these men and women of old were examples of faith. But it is centered upon this simple truth. Jesus Christ is alive. And He has cared for your sin in the one place it really matters. And that's in the temple of God in heaven. And if it's been dealt with there, if Christ truly has ascended to heaven and dealt with my sin in the presence of the holy, holy God, in whom is light and no darkness at all, then it is a small thing for it to be cared for here in my life. For the eternal consequences of my sin are gone. The eternal uh, payment for it has been made And so as I consider the sacrifice of our Lord, as I consider the power of His resurrection, I also consider the fact that He ever lives interceding for me before the Father. And that truth brings a fullness to us that should move us to worship. And Luke, I think, ends this gospel by referring to the worship of the disciples as a purposeful conclusion to how he began his gospel. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. I want you to remember what I have shared with you, how Christ moved the disciples from fear to worship. I want you to see what Luke intended for you who are friendly toward God. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. Isn't that great? Fulfilled means completed. Luke understood that there is a completion to the work of Christ. That His ascension was a fulfillment of it. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word delivered them to us. We have this account carefully passed down from the eyewitnesses. Luke says, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect or complete understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus meaning one friendly toward God. May have been a believer, may not have yet been a believer, may have been a brand new believer, may have just been a generic term. Hey, all you people who are friendly toward God, here's what I want for you. Verse 4. I still have this (laughs) marked, of course, from preaching it, what was it, a year and a half ago, two years ago, something like that. That you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. To know the certainty of Christ, of all He is and all He has done, moves us to worship in spirit and in truth. To know the certainty of the things we've been instructed in. What are the things He's referring to? He's referring to the things of Christ that have been eyewitnessed the things that have been delivered, the, the ministers of the Word delivered to him, the things that Luke has come to have complete understanding of. And now, wants to communicate to others. Here, the Gospel of Luke is Luke himself fulfilling Christ's mandate at the end of the book to be faithful witnesses of the, these things. That you are to tell others. That you are to go and, and move others to a point of repentance and, and 
that God could remove their sin if you will simply give them that message that they are sinners and need a Savior. And the Gospel of Luke itself is Luke's act of obedience to that command. Not only to one official possibly in the Roman Empire, but and I have to believe that the term involves this, but to all those who are near to God, who are friendly towards Him, but haven't stepped over the line, who have been instructed from the things of God, but haven't stepped over that line, that line is to move us from fear to faith, and that line is fulfilling to the Word of God when we trust in it. That we might, as Luke says to Theophilus, that we might have a certainty of those things. Back in Hebrews, and I invite you to turn there now. I've spoken and we've read it. The author has been seeking to develop this idea of Christ and the and the and the completion of his work over and over again that it is finished that it is uh, now accomplished in heavenly places in chapter 8 verse 1 we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected not man this is the one we serve who is seated there He is mediating a better covenant there. We come into chapter 9 and we find that it is His improvement over the blood of bulls and goats and heifers that we have the blood of the Son of God applied in heavenly places that have secured for us a promise of eternal inheritance. That our inheritance is forever because the sacrifice has been applied in a forever place. And then we come to chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands ministering daily. Same sacrifice, the same offerings that can never take away sins. Theophilus, a friendly toward God one, could be participating in a lot of religious ritual and none of that ritual can take away sins. Only Jesus Christ. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, why is it forever? Because it has been applied in that place called heaven which is forever. It has already been applied there and it says the time is waiting now till his enemies are made his footstool, but he's already perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And we see the Spirit's activity in this through the witnesses. Those who have passed it down over these last almost 2,000 years, witnesses of this powerful working of Christ, that He has secured for us forever in heavenly places a wondrous inheritance. We talked last week about the responsive nature of this relationship between us and God. That God comes first and sends His Son and demonstrates His love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Then in response to that, we are called to repentance. In response to repentance, Christ says, I'll remove your sin. In response to that removal, we obey His command, His mandate. That in response to our obedience of His command and mandate, He empowers us by His Spirit. Well, this is reflected again in Hebrews chapter 10. We have this truth. We have Christ doing all this for us. We have this high priest. We have this better sacrifice. We have the Spirit's witness. And then we come to verse 19. It says, Therefore, brethren, which means you have a part 
in this plan. Since we have been granted this boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ, because we have this new and living way in which He has consecrated us through the veil of His flesh, because we have a high priest over the house of God, now what do we do? Oh, the next few verses tell us what worship is. In response to receiving all of this and understanding it. And this is all Hebrews was written for. As to get you off of the milk and get you into some meat so that you can really worship. Did that give you tingles? It wasn't to pull out a symphony orchestra to get you to really worship. It's to pull out some meaty truth. You have this kind of a Savior who has acquired for you this kind of an inheritance that's going to last forever. Now what? (laughs) You get to enter the holiest place of all by the blood of Christ. You get a new and living way that Christ has set aside for us by His flesh. And we have a high priest over the house of God. We have a priest that cannot be touched by sin, who will last forever, doesn't ever have to be replaced. So what? So, here's what worship is. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promises faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. And then he goes on and talks about refusing to sin willfully, that we live in righteousness. And then he goes even further on. He says, now let us walk by faith. Chapter 11. And really the rest of Hebrews is all about this application of this truth. And if you want to begin in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, and read to the end of the book of Hebrews, you will discover the fullness of what worship is. It's all about being godly. That in our very being, we worship Him, we draw near to Him, and our meditations and our thoughts and our lives and our decisions are focused upon Him. And it's not about how I feel. It's not about if I feel warm inside. It's not about if it just carries me off in a cloud of goodness. It's about being grounded in perfect truth. And then now I can draw near to God. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. Not of this world's elusive dreams. It's nothing between I can put aside all that I am and I can put aside all that sin because now I have full access to God in heaven. I can draw near to the holiest places in the name of Christ and by the blood of the Lamb. All because we have a Savior who is not walking around on earth but rather one that is at work in heaven on our behalf. And my response is to draw near with a true heart. A heart that's focus and concern is not me or mine, but on Jesus. A true heart with full assurance of faith. That full assurance of faith is exactly what Luke wanted to develop in this man Theophilus or this category of man, Theophilus, friends of God. And that is absolute certainty. Out of a foundation of absolute certainty of our faith, we can worship. Because we have this truth. Unwavering. Without doubt. Without question. And we are appreciating and enjoying all of its effects. And so we come to God, we draw near to Him with true hearts, with full assurance of faith and hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. 
the blood of Christ applied in heaven, therefore applied here. That if God remembers my sin no more because of the shed blood of Christ, why do I? I can serve Him, not because I am such a good person, but because I've been made perfect by the blood of Christ. I can serve Him. I can come to Him, not only in my conscience, but in my body itself. Not with the water of this earth, but the pure water of the Word. Let me share what worship is. It's holding fast your confession without wavering. That's worship. And all that develops that within you is worship. And let me share with you that my human sensitivities called feelings, seldom enable me to hold fast my hope without wavering. Because my feelings are all over the place. From day to day, sometimes hour to hour, moment moment to moment. And it is a sad state of affairs when the Christian community in so many places is dependent upon a Sunday morning service to hype them up so that they can worship. This is not worship. For worship is an unwavering faith of the hope, the assurance of it, that I stand fast. That's worship. The disciples worshiped that day because they moved from fear to faith and doubted no more. I challenge you, read through the rest, the second part, the the follow-up to Acts, or not to Luke, which is Acts. Read through it. Show me where they doubted. Show me where they doubted. At the ascension on, they worship. How? Because they had full assurance of their faith they were going to stand fast. Which means that they were going to walk in righteousness. They're going to walk in truth. They're going to be obedient to their Savior. Oh, maybe not perfect obedience. You know, Peter had his hiccups and, and uh, the disciples didn't get out of the temple quite fast enough, so God forced the issue a little bit. But their heart and their desire and their movement of their life was to obedience of Christ's commands. This, my brethren, is worship. This is the evidence of a steadfastness, a holding fast, a confession of hope without wavering, not because we are so wonderful, but because the One who has promised it is faithful. And we know Him. Based upon that knowledge that we gain from opening the Scriptures to our mind and comprehension, we can worship. And then verse 24 and 25 opens it up here in Hebrews 10. It says, let us consider one another. Do you see how we move from drawing near to Christ to a life of righteousness and of steadfastness and of faith And it moves immediately into a life of service. They're all connected. And when one starts to drop off, it brings to bear some questions on the others. For they all are interlaced. So we cannot say, well, I'm steadfast in my faith, but never drawn near to God with clear conscience. We cannot claim to have drawn near to God with a clear conscience and still be full of doubt and wavering. Oh, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. And we can't claim to have drawn near to God and be full of faith and steadfast and immovable and assured and certain and then not ever serve one another. For they are born of each other. And so as we Draw near to God in verse 22. We are told to then hold fast this confession without wavering. We are then told in 24, consider one another to stir up love and good works. Don't forsake the assembling ourselves together. And that's another whole message. I'm not going to get three in today. 
And it says, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Brother, we see the day approaching. It is not the time to become less fervent in the exercise of our faith. I just want to say that at the very end. As I said earlier today, there are churches that are going to not have services this Christmas because Christmas falls on Sunday and they want you to be home with their families and you can worship at home with your family. But you also can gather and assemble yourself together with the saints. And when I read a verse like this and it says, so much the more as you see the day approaching. Does it say that? But exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What do we find at the end times? So much the less. We find churches meeting less and less and less often. Let's go to Acts. Let's see. They met um, class. Help me out. Daily. In the temple and from house to house. We congratulate ourselves if we get to church. uh, Well, I go twice on Sundays. Most churches now are down to one service. Because they're so big that they are bigger in their buildings, so they have Saturday night and three on Sunday, but they're all the same service, you're only expected to one of them. The day is approaching, brethren. So what should your worship be? Less or more? Now this is referring to corporate worship, when we gather together with the saints, and they're um, and that should happen. And it should probably happen more often, not less often in these days. I'm always amazed at Pastor Reddy when he, how often they meet together. The pastors of the churches, the churches, how frequently they get together. That on Christmas Eve, they're gathering together and fasting and praying. Because on Christmas Day, actually Hindus come to church. They're not gathering together to to have this feel-good little thing or fulfill some cultural thing on Christmas Eve. They're gathering together to fast and pray for their services the next day, and they'll do it all night. They're not thinking about opening presents. They're thinking about giving the greatest present of all, Jesus Christ, to their Hindu neighbors. That's worship. Because worship calls us to draw near to God. Clean conscience. Conscience. Worship calls us to stand fast without wavering our confession of hope. A surety, a certainty about us in our belief in Jesus Christ. That is worship. To minister His Word one to another. Stirring up love and good works. And then gathering frequently with my fellow believers to exhort each other. This is the exhorting part of our service. But you know what? It shouldn't end and it's not just my job. It shouldn't end when I'm done preaching and it's not just my job. It is your job to exhort one another toward love and the good deeds. To move in our ministry one toward another. And of course, we already have the mandate Christ gave us of sharing the gospel with those that we encounter. Brethren, our worship needs to be biblical. And its focus isn't on us, but on our Savior. And the measure of successful worship isn't if you act goosebumps at the end. The measure of successful worship 
is have you brought others to worship? Luke begins by saying, Brother Theophilus, I want you to know for certain the things you've been taught. That you may join Christ's disciples at the end of the Gospel of Luke and worship your living Savior who today is in that heavenly temple interceding for us. That is the measure of successful worship. is the elevation of Christ in our midst. With an expectation that this day will end and that that day of Christ's coming will be upon us and will find us standing fast in our faith and in our service to Christ.